Welcome to Birkbeck Voices, the monthly podcast with the latest news and research from Birkbeck, University of London. I'm Andrew Youngson, Media and Publicity Officer, and I'll be your host for this, our Arts Week special podcast. This year's Arts Week showcases lectures, performances, screenings and discussions in and around Birkbeck School of Arts from the 18th to the 23rd of May. Before the annual event kicks off, I caught up with a selection of experts and artists who will be speaking at three of the events. And with nearly 50 fascinating events happening across the week, this wasn't an easy task. I'll be speaking with Nikki Zanti about the Visual Arts Today Symposium, and we'll get a special poetry reading from Birkbeck's Dr Leanne Strauss ahead of the Moons, Magpies and London poetry event. But first up, how do we imagine ruins in a modern world? And how does that affect the way we consider ruined tourism? These big questions are at the fore of an Arts Week event being held at Waterstone's Gower Street on Tuesday the 19th of May. I met up with Dr Silke Arnold de Simine, Senior Lecturer in Memory, Museum and Cultural Studies, who's leading the event. So uh, welcome, Silke, to this Sparkbeck Voices special on Arts Week. Um, just before we get into talking uh, specifically about your event and what people can look forward to, can you give me an idea of what you mean when you refer to ruins in its broadest sense? Well, in its broadest sense, it's a way uh, how we can relate to the past through traces which this past has left behind. So we're talking about material traces, uh, the past which is on the one hand gone, but on the other hand still present. So presence in absence. Uh, and that's what makes the ruin so interesting, I think. Okay. Is, that, is that quite a difficult concept to communicate, do you find, um, with people who might be new to the, to the area of expertise? Well, I don't think so, because I think a lot of people are fascinated by ruins and a lot of people like visiting ruins. And therefore, I think a lot of people are intrigued by their own interest and sort of will think about what makes ruins so special to them. And I suppose it will be different to different people. Mm -hmm. But I think there's something about this um, balance, I suppose, which the ruin offers between being between the past and the present, being between culture and nature. Uh, Often ruins are overgrown by uh, plants. And so we find something in ruins that seems to combine things we usually don't find that go together very easily. Mm -hmm. Launching into Arts Week then, um, on the 19th you're hosting an event. Um, What can you give us uh, in terms of a flavour of what people can expect without giving it away too much? Well, (laughs) it's not quite a detective novel, so (laughs) I don't think I will give away too much when I say uh, I'm mostly interested in the ruin as as a memorial. Mm -hmm. And um, so I'm not interested in the the ruin as a monument that points back to a, a glorious past that we can admire through its remains. I'm interested in the ruin as uh, a marker of of what of what is often a catastrophe, an event in the past uh, that is perceived as uh, you know a, a rupture in in history. So it allows us to um, ruins ruins that allow us to. Uh, negotiate a relationship to what's often a very difficult uh, or catastrophic event in the past. And increasingly, these are not only man-made events, but also uh, natural disasters. So we find a lot of uh, what I call ruin memorials referring to uh, natural disasters. And these can be authentic ruins, what I would call authentic ruins, the remains 
of uh, of a catastrophe of a of a of a disaster, or they can be uh, artificial ruins that basically uh, build on the iconography of the ruin. So, so for example, a a commemorative. Um, plaque or, or something that's been created? or Often, I mean, one of my examples which I'm talking about on the, uh, during this event is uh, um, a memorial that was built in Budapest uh, last year, 2014. Mm-hmm. And it's a memorial to the German occupation, victims of the German occupation in Hungary. And this uh, memorial uses the iconography of the ruins. So it uses broken columns, a sort of tympanon, which is broken, uh, and the arch uh, angel Gabriel personifies Hungary, the innocent Hungary. Mm -hmm. So it's um, a a case of a bit of sort of falsifying history on the on the on the side of the Hungarian right wing Hungarian government. Um, which tries to write out Hungary's complicity, I suppose is the best word, in what happened uh, uh, in during the Second World War, the end of it, uh, with the Jewish population, the Jewish population in in Budapest in Hungary, mm-hmm. um, and so they 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 try to portray Hungary as the, the the innocent victim in that, and the ruin is is a way of of authenticating uh, a. In that, in this case, a sort of slightly fabricated past. Mm-hmm. So ruins can be used to really, you know, sort of to relate to remains, but also to construct something that is seen as uh, an authentic trauma uh, relating to the past, but which is very much a part of memory politics, mm-hmm. as we can see in Hungary. So then, in in terms of what we can learn from ruins, I guess maybe that should be tempered slightly by what agenda there might be behind one. If it's um, not in its purest form, something that's been left behind, what what can we mm. learn, and how should we approach that? Mm. Well, that is never a pure form. That that has to be said. You know, even what we call authentic remains are, at some point, often the decision is made to preserve them, to make uh, you know, to 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 make a conscious effort to preserve them in a certain way. So there is never such a thing as an authentic ruin. And funnily enough, just because the the ruin is authentic, I don't think our relationship to that past is therefore authentic or more real. Uh, You get, you know, a very romanticized relationship to very authentic, in inverted commas, ruins. Mm -hmm. And in the case of that Budapest memorial, the ruins might be fake, but what it triggered, a huge protest movement, which has triggered an immense debate, a controversial debate in Hungary around uh, uh, Hungary's uh, role in the Second World War, uh, is very real and very genuine and very interesting. Mm -hmm. So it's, I think it's not a question of we have authentic ruins who give us an authentic relationship to the past and then we have fake ruins sure. which are which provide a nostalgic or a, a, a somehow falsified uh, relationship to the past the ruin there's something in the ruin that can't be contained i would say the meaning can be can't be contained and it has a lot to do with the role ruins play in our has have been playing in our cultures over centuries so there is something very complicated going on. It complicates our relationship to the past, and that's what's really interesting about it. So then it comes down to a lot of interpretation on individual levels, on a group level, depending on you're saying it can be contained. Is that because the way it's perceived could carry different meanings for different groups? I would say it can't be contained because the the 
that is what I would describe as the, what makes a ruin interesting. It's like a lenticular picture image where you ca you can't hold just one of those sides. It's a sort of it's it flips. And you can't just arrest it, I suppose. Some people will see, I don't know, the rabbit, and other people will see an old lady. But in in a sense, what it what it makes it interesting is the way that it flips, and and that's how ruins work. They always flip, so you can't contain them, uh, and therefore I would think uh, they're a very interesting example of how we negotiate our relationship to the past. I would imagine in your work you get to travel a bit to see these sites of interest yes I, I wonder as the to be as objective as possible as a researcher as as the academic when you go to one of these sites of interest what approach do you try to take when absorbing what you see in front of you well to be absolutely honest with you often it's a question of encountering something by accident it's not always planned you don't always sort of have a map in front of you mm. and say oh look they've opened a new memorial and oh look it has some ruins in it let's go there but I've been traveling to different places Buenos Aires Budapest sometimes for conferences sometimes for workshops sometimes for research projects which often are connected but are not necessarily about ruins and then you find oh your interest your research interest somehow finds its way back again and again to the ruin um and yeah and what i like about it this surprise encounter can trigger something so you don't come necessarily with preconceived ideas you don't come and say oh i have this point to prove and I'm looking now at this example and hoping this will prove my point. But you have a sort of uh, almost a shock encounter and that kind of gives you new ideas. And that's how it worked for me, at least, around ruins in my research. Because ruins has never been the centre in that sense of my research. It has always drifted in, uh, in the periphery of my research. Um, I started um, out as a PhD student writing on Gothic novels. And of course, the ruin is an important of motif course. in the Gothic novel. Even you could say it, it becomes a character in the Gothic novel. And and then I moved on, or what I thought I'd, I'd moved on to a different research topic, looking at German films. And there I was looking at the German rubble film after the Second World War, which uh, these films were all set in were the really the destroyed cities, uh, the real rubble of, of the German cities after the Second World War. And then looking at memorials and museums, and here I here I am again, you know, <laughs> looking at ruins. Um, so it's 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 in a way it's been something that's been following me around. And even as a researcher, when you think you you switch you move on to a different topic, um, it kind of um, stays with you because I suppose there are underlying questions <laughs> which tie these all these different topics together. And the ruin seems something that runs through all of these research interests. There, there's um, something you refer to um, is, is the idea of tourism mm. um, as well. Ruined tourism, yes. there's the phrase dark tourism dark as well. Tourism, Could yes. you explain that a little bit for me? Yeah, obviously it's nothing new, I have to say that. You know, people often make it sound as if dark tourism was uh, something that basically, you know, happened in the last few decades um, 
after the huge you know catastrophes and wars of of the 20th century uh, that's not true it it goes back a long way and i mean ruined tourism goes back a long way um but it's definitely you know it's definitely an interesting question if the sort of ruined tourism of the past has been translated in the modern into the modern dark tourism where people visit sites uh, of catastrophes um so they travel i don't know uh, they travel to buenos aires and go to the clandestine detention centers uh there um to, they go to, I don't know, to Vietnam or, you know, uh, Cambodia or to other places just or to Japan and visit the Hiroshima Memorial. And so, you know, this is certainly something that has picked up and uh, people providing these kind of special tours also. Uh, that is something that you can see has picked up. You can visit the site of Chernobyl. And um, so it's it's not something where people just go to a place and then because it's a part of the tourist itinerary, uh, they also go to that place, but they specifically seek out these places to go there. And there's a kind of ruined porn and, and you know, uh, kind of uh, trauma porn, I suppose, involved in that. And a lot of people find that very problematic, uh, the kind of voyeurism that could potentially sure. be fueled by that. Um, but um, it's also a, a way of engaging with, trauma and I think again like with the ruin it has two sides and we have to acknowledge them both there's a problematic way there's a problematic sense of voyeurism involved and obviously consumerism so people make money out of that countries make money out of their difficult pasts uh, uh, but there's also a real a sense that people really need to engage with that and want to engage with that so both things are happening and I think we have to be careful and look at each example quite carefully to see what's going on. And as the academic, I would imagine you're not there to impart judgment on, on whether something might be a perverse voyeurism. It's just, it is what it is and, and let's study it from every possible a angle. Well, you can certainly, uh, <laughs> I wouldn't refrain from judgment. I don't think I'm known for <laughs> refraining from judgment. <laughs> um, you could certainly... Uh, see if something invites a certain response but obviously people respond in unpredictable ways so you know visitors are never forced you can never force visitors to respond in a certain way uh, people who feel that they're pressurized to respond in a certain way might respond you know in exactly the opposite way um so you could but you can pick you can certainly describe a memorial or a memorial site as something that encourages a certain emotional response, but you can never predict if visitors will actually feel that way. And just lastly, bringing it back to the Arts Week event, you know, that's that's why we're all here. So yes. what do you hope then that people will take away with them from, from your event? Mm. Well, I hope that they will see how the ruin can be instrumentalized for the politics of memory uh, or memory politics. Uh, but um, I hope they will also see that there is often a residual resistance in the association's ruins uh, trigger, which makes it virtually impossible uh, to control the meaning of the ruin for any kind of purposes. Sure. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thanks.
The notion of artistic identity is arguably as fluid as the concept of art itself, inextricably tied to the waves of change in society and culture. With the ever-morphing nature of artistic identity firmly in mind, the Visual Artist Today Symposium on Tuesday the 19th of May at the Peltz Gallery examines becoming, being and unbecoming a visual artist. Among the speakers will be Birkbeck academics Nikki Zanti, Sarah Scarsbrook and Ruth Solomons. Before the event, I was joined by Nikki, a PhD researcher and lecturer in arts management, who gave me insight into what the symposium will explore. Welcome to the podcast, Nikki. Uh, Just to launch straight into the Visual Arts Today Symposium, what can you tell me about some of the overarching themes that will be discussed on the 19th? It's quite a a long day that you've got planned. So what can we, what can people turning up expect? Um... The main theme is the artist's identity, and we're looking at the theme, um, the different parts of the how the artist's identity is expressed by different people. So we have artists, academics doing research in the area, um, artists experiencing their own artist's identity and then talking about this. Um, and we have uh, art historians talking about how artistic identity was expressed throughout the years. So we have quite a, a variety of people talking about this and there is research in the area um, so the the different themes that we're looking to to extract from it um, is the looking at how art education um, kind of constructs artist identity and how uh, through formal training um, you artists develop their artist identity through their understanding of how they're supposed to to behave. Um, and then we're looking at some artists are talking about how their studio kind of constructs and maintains their artist identity through the process of professionalization. Um, and we have other artists talking about their artistic careers. And this is actually uh, the, the session that I'll be um, chairing. Uh, so their uh, understanding of how their own artist identity is expressed throughout the choices that they make in their, in their lives and in their work. Um, so these are the overarching themes that we're looking to explore. And also um, authorship, which is Ruth's session, um, and looking at how collectively artists work, how artists work collectively, mm-hmm. um, and uh, how that may reinforce or challenge their perception of themselves as artists. So in terms of looking at the, the notion of artistic identity um how would you say that has changed in recent years um and 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 where is it now where where is it heading um i don't know if we can say where it is where it's now um the research in the in in the field so far has been from art historians looking at how artist identity is expressed through artists work so the actual artworks that they produce so how they um, define themselves through their work Um, and sociologists looking at how artist identity is expressed through um, the artist myth and the collective perception of what it means to be an artist Um, and what we're doing and what we found in our in our research because we're both uh, PhD students doing research in the area um, Sarah Ruth and I um, and what we found through our research is that actually there's a need for research in, in the fields of arts management in, 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 in looking at what artist identity means mm-hmm. and for artists. Um, 
themselves. So I think the the notion has changed and is is continuously changing. Is it's multifaceted and and it's con- constantly um, changing. Uh, so I think how it might change is through um, the changes in arts education from a primary school level to a higher education level. So how they're shifting towards more professionalization in in arts education and therefore um, the arts identity will change towards that, I think. Mm-hmm. In the blurb for the event, you talk about the concept of becoming, um, being and even unbecoming a visual artist. Mm. For, for the lay person like me, can you explain <laughs> a little bit of what does that actually mean? Um, we had this idea from when we were discussing about the symposium before we even started thinking of doing the, the symposium. We were thinking of the artist's identity as a trajectory um, that develops throughout an artist's life. And um, so becoming would be the, the stages, uh, the, the initial stages of an artist's career, if we can say that, um, from when they start their arts education and then starting to believe that they have become artists. So that, that sort of initial stage of becoming an artist. And when, when can that stage be? Right from a very young age? Or is that when it's um, being seen as a, a professional path that they might want to embark on? That's, that's part of the debate as well. Uh, when does an artist start to become an artist? Is it from, um, from if they've graduated from uh, an arts academy or after that or before that? Um, I would say through, through my own research that... Um, I think artist identity begins from early on in their lives, from when they start the initial stages of drawing and then somebody tells them they have some sort of talent or they, they acknowledge some sort of talent. So they they begin forming this artist identity from very early on. Um, so yeah, so that's in the stage of becoming, mm-hmm. becoming an artist. And then the stage of being an artist is when um, they start developing a visual arts practice of their own independently or or in groups collectively um, and this this sort of stage um, usually includes a lot of challenges and a lot of um, things that they need to overcome like financial stability or families or um, different elements of their lives that interact and intercept with their perception of themselves as artists so if an artist is working uh, full-time doing something else, is he still an artist or is she still an artist? Um, so that's the sort of questions that are going to be discussed in the symposium as well. And um, then what about unbecoming then? What what does that mm-hmm. constitute? Um, the unbecoming is looking at ways to, to challenge the typical model. So um, there, are, there are different ways to perceive the artist's identity and as it as it's changing. So the unbecoming part would be um, artists actually questioning their own identity as artists and what that means to them and um, if they're still artists, if they don't do work full time, if they're still artists, if they uh, have a family and maintain a family full time. So if they don't have a studio, what does that mean to them? Um, so these questions are some of the things that we're going to be discussing. I mean, I would imagine that the idea of being an artist is is a way of life, and whether you're practicing or not, mm. it's absolutely 
part of what defines who you are and how you present yourself to other people but yeah. it is that a very simplistic view of it and and can people leave that behind and and move into something else or have multiple facets to their their personality running concurrently yeah uh so that's that's the current uh trend in research if i can say that that um especially in the uk there's been a shift to perceiving the artist's identity as having multiple identities so you can be an artist and also be doing something else and also be um uh, uh, i don't know a comedian or something uh, so there is there is this perception that we can be multiple things and our identity can can be expressed through through all these elements. Um, but there are still and and we have some artists discussing this in, in the symposium that there are still artists who believe that um, or 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 debate within themselves that their identity um, can be expressed only through doing art. Um, so I'm interested in, in finding out more about what other people, um, have found through their research about this subject. Sure. Why is an event like this important to, first of all, for, you know, for the school to host, but also to bring together visual artists to debate on this topic? Why is it important? Hmm. Uh, (laughs) um, I think that the event itself will give, it will be a platform for artists, practitioners, other practitioners, um, academics, and um, other researchers to combine their ideas and discuss their ideas and debate their ideas and even challenge their own perception of what it means to be an artist. Um, and within the school, it, I think um, a lot of researchers in the school uh, do 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 research in this field so it's important to to kind of showcase the amount of debate that comes out from from Birkbeck um, um, about this subject and um, I think developing an understanding of the artist's identity is important in general uh, on a national international level um, because it it kind of it it helps us understand more about the art world itself, uh, understanding artists helps us understand art wor- the art world itself and artists' needs within um, within this infrastructure. Um, and I think it, it helps us understand their internal priorities as well as uh, what artists prioritize in their life and how um, other elements in 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 their supportive this supportive infrastructure so education or the state or um, galleries museums how these different external dynamics um, influence the artist's identity and how we can actually support it or foster it in some way and just lastly what do you hope participants at the event will will experience and take away with them what would be the ideal outcome for you um more debate more um more discussions about the subject more research in the field um i like to personally i'd like to see how in different geographical locations artistic identity may be expressed differently and why this this happens um but it's hopefully um 
to gain a richer understanding and knowledge of the artist's identity today and to take away with them um, questions instead of answers maybe just just so that they the debate will continue and expand thank you very much Now, in keeping with Arts Week's mission to present an eclectic mix of art forms, there will be plenty of performance-based events at this year's showcase. An excellent example is the dreamily titled poetry event, Moons, Magpies and London. The early evening event, which will be held at the Upper Fleet Cafe on Upper Woburn Place on Thursday the 21st of May, will feature readings from and discussions with three highly acclaimed poets, among them will be Birkbeck's very own Head of Poetry and Creative Writing, Dr Leanne Strauss. Dr Strauss popped by to discuss her part in the event, which will include a number of readings from her new book, All the Ways You Still Remind Me of the Moon. But before we chatted, she kindly agreed to do a special performance for our listeners of a poem which she will read on Thursday night, My Maninas and the Moon. Now this poem comes with an epigraph, the following quote from Pablo Picasso himself. I would try to do it in my way, forgetting Velázquez. So, little by little, I would paint my Meninas. They would be my Meninas. My Meninas and the Moon My Meninas are as changeable as the moon, black and white and in colour, happy, sad, and how many words there are for red enough and the pallor of skin. Their moments of verisimilitude do not outweigh their flashes of pathos. Whole days go by when they cannot appreciate the humor of which the dog is one manner, the dwarf another. My meninas are not puppets, but puppet theaters. That it is the puppet master who draws the curtain in the stairwell is pure whimsy on my part, a minuet of despair, andante of foolhardiness. How many times have I tried to explain these differences, the sting of joy, a lilt of crimson, the dark and the light of the moon, not the moon, the soul, but a sphere predisposed to rotation, the man in the doorway, the dog who lies sleeping, these are my meninas, the sun in the mirror, the sun and the moon and the man behind the easel, mostly invisible, like the pictures on the wall. The moon is not more changeable, however, than they, my meninas, who never stop changing, and waiting on the children of the sun and of the moon, for they will always be my meninas, their eyes of every minim on the palette, blue and tragical, white on white against a black ground, until the moon sings every shape and shade of grey from hope to ample, and again. Okay, welcome, Leanne, to the Birkbeck Voices Arts Week special podcast. Um, thank you very much for doing that beautiful reading of your poem, which audiences at the Arts Week event will also be able to, to bear um, auditory witness to. Um, first of all, can you tell us a little bit about that poem that you chose to read here? A bit of the background, but the story behind it. Um, yes, thank you, Andrew. I'd be happy to. I um, the the painting that that the that the poem is is involved in. Las Meninas, um, the painting by Velázquez, for reasons that I don't really understand necessarily very very much about, has always um, been a painting that's 
spoken to me or that I felt drawn to or I felt close to. I, I don't know how that works, but there are certain paintings and painters and artists that one feels that one has affinities with. I think we all have that, um, that we can't completely account for. And uh, so I've, I've, it's been a part of my life. I, when I, so when I started to write this book about the moon, which is probably not really about the moon, um, I, it was sort of inevitable that I'd, I'd do a, a poem called My Meninas and the Moon. Um, for me, the moon is probably uh, more about uh, our relationship to something mysterious that's in our life every day, all the time, that we don't even notice most of the time, but, it, but it's there. Um, and I guess that's what I was sort of looking at in general in the in the book. The Picasso's the Picasso relationship to the Velasquez is an interesting one um, because to me the painting itself is already about painting, and Picasso to paint his what he does Picasso famously painted fifty eight I think or fifty seven fifty eight fifty eight paintings in nineteen fifty seven um, in response to. Uh, to Velázquez's um, Meninas, and some of them aren't even about Las Meninas in an obvious way. They're paintings of the doves and the dovecote that he grew up with that his, was his father's. So his relationship to that painting is very rich and interesting. Um, and yeah, so I thought this would be sort of my little version of, of that project, <laughs> of, of somehow talking to the painting that so the the speaker is you. These are your meninas, or are you speaking as Picasso? Um, oh, that's a great question. No, I don't think I'm speaking as, as either of those people in a way. I think um, I think I'm talking in the poem. The the I in the poem is is someone who's looking at that painting, and that's their relationship with the. I think we're all entitled to a relationship and a possession of the things we we uh, see. I think sometimes we get very hung up looking at a painting about you know what we know about painting, what we don't know about painting, dates and things like that. But paintings and poems, I think we all have our own. We're entitled to our own personal <laughs> version and relationship with them. In in your work, I'm talking holistically. What kind of a creative process do you go to? What kind of a, a mental space, a physical space do you need to be in to let this flow? Uh, yeah. Um, I think, so physical space, I really need to be in my own space. I'm not one of those people who can go to the Starbucks or wherever people go to with their computers. Um, I, uh, yeah, I need, I need to be alone pretty much. And um, I compose straight onto the computer. I think I came of age at a time when that, that was possible and, <laughs> and the obvious way to compose. My handwriting is a mess. I, can, I can't read my own handwriting. So it would be a disaster to do drafts in my own handwriting. <laughs> And um, yeah, and I and I guess my process, insofar as I can, you know, see it, my process is that of writing and rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. So rewriting is definitely part of the way I write. I don't ever feel like I've written something. I always feel, even from the beginning, like I'm rewriting something. If that makes sense. Sure. There's going to be a number of readings that you're going to be doing at the Arts Week event. Um, the the selection process for that, can you tell me a little bit about how you choose from your babies to which ones will make it into um, yes. into the performance? Yes. Um, so how I choose the, I choose the the ones that that behave best in public. I think <laughs> the um, I will uh, I ch I choose for public readings 
poems that people can relate to hearing them once. I think that's not true about all poems, and and, and that's not a judgment on either on either one or the other. Um, but I think people enjoy certain poems. That that's how I decide what poems I think people will enjoy in performance most. And, and some of your other pieces of work, do they fall into that category of they they need more than one hearing, one reading? Do you do you vary the the, the style and the and the the thickness of of the writing that that you you do? Yeah, I, d- I don't know if it's about. Um, that it's about them not being as easy to sort of, as accessible. I, I, I think it's more that there there is there aren't the rewards that would come with listening to some of the others. I think some of the others just behave better. <laughs> mm. The the Arts Week event itself. Um, what's your understanding of the purpose of it and and the form it will take? Yeah, I, th- I mean, I, I think my understanding of the purpose is that it's we're doing it to showcase the wonderful work Matt McKenzie is doing at the Pekakariki Press, which I've just mispronounced, I'm sure, um, but that's my best go at it. So it was a good go. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and uh, uh, he, you know, he's 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 publishing, he's printing on his letterpress and publishing books of poetry that are works of art in themselves, objects of art in themselves. And uh, and I think, yeah, people deserve to hear more about that. Mm. And just lastly, what what do you and the other, the other poets, or you imagine what they hope, um, that audience members will experience and that they'll take away with them from coming to the event? I hope what they'll experience is a delightful evening of poetry and wine and uh, information about printed letter print press work and I hope I think we all hope that they'll go home with one of our books <laughs> <laughs> that's a good aim to have in mind I think so. thank you very much <laughs> thank for joining you, us Andrew. and that's it from our Arts Week special of Birkbeck Voices for full programme information of what's on at Arts Week and to book a free place at an event visit www.bbk.ac.uk forward slash Arts Week Bye for now and thanks for listening.